Take your scriptures and turn to 1 Peter 4. And if you did not come with a copy of the scriptures, you can find that in the Bible provided for you on page 1016. And this will be the last uh, sermon in 1 Peter 4 this year. And next Sunday morning, we will gather at 10 o'clock for our Christmas presentation. And one of the ways that we can serve our guests next week is if you have a vehicle that is able to park on the field, uh, if we could encourage you and direct you to park on that side so that we have enough parking spaces open. We don't know uh, what to expect by way of how many guests, but uh, we hope to have many, so we'd like to reserve as many of the parking spots out there as possible. If you have a, a little Prius, please take one of our, our parking spots. Okay, but if you have a vehicle or you're able to walk through a little bit of snow, I don't know what the weather's going to be like next Sunday morning, uh, but if we can encourage you to park on that side. Well, what comes to your mind when you think of Christmas? What just popped into your mind? Trees, tinsel, gifts, children laughing. There's a lot of enjoyable, festive things that we associate with this time of year. Let me tweak the question just a little bit. What comes into your mind when you think of the birth of Christ? A lot of our minds immediately go to this little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, these strips of cloth uh, that they would have wrapped him in and placed him in a feeding trough. Some of our minds run to the whole nativity scene, right? Shepherds and angels and... Wise men, even though the wise men weren't really there, right? We know that. They came later and they appeared at the house. He was already in the house, not uh, where the shepherds greeted him. Uh, But we kind of lump that all together, right? The nativity scene. Perhaps you think more more theologically in tune. You think of the prophecies that went on uh, that made these predictions about his arrival hundreds of years before it happened in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Micah. Perhaps it is just the shepherds. I love considering the shepherds the most unlikely to be the first ones to receive the news of the newborn king outside of urban Jerusalem, overlooked, doing a menial task, perhaps even raising sheep for the sacrifices in Jerusalem. And yet there they are, shocked, stunned at the announcement of the angel to the shepherds. Perhaps the wise men. How did they even know? I mean, these men are coming from the east. How did they even know to start a journey to welcome this king? And they didn't seem surprised to find him in a house, probably a simple house, because Joseph and Mary were of a lower class. Yet there they presented him these gifts. Perhaps your mind wanders to the mystery of the God-man. God taking on human form. God taking on flesh. And even as Pastor Matt opened up this morning, He had to take on flesh so He could what? So He could die. It was the only way that He could die was to take on humanity. So let me ask you this. When when you think of the birth of Christ, do you think death, suffering, rejection, Because that's exactly what Peter is going to point us to in 1 Peter chapter 4. 
The Apostle Paul already said this. He, he gives these purpose statements. For this reason, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, how is he going to save us? By dying for us. Suffering and dying. John says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the, de of the devil. And the way to destroy Satan is by destroying death itself. He's the one that had power over death. We live, Hebrews says, in lifelong fear of death. Now the Son of God appears as a baby to destroy death, to defeat Satan. And what is shrouded around the birth narrative is the devil's murderous nature. The Lamb of God arrives and has the murderous lion's full attention. Peter's going to call him that in the next chapter. And he tries to destroy the child. In Matthew 2, 16 to 18, it says, Then Herod became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But now, a child arrived that Satan could not kill. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? Here is a child and he tries to orchestrate the death even while the child is an infant and he cannot kill this child. It would be the father who would crush the son so that through his death the world might live. And right now we live in between the two advents. Last week Ethan explained to us what an advent is. It simply means an arrival or an appearing or a coming and the first advent is the birth of Christ. And we live in between these two advents. And the next advent is His second coming. And we live here. And we're not sure at what point in this timeline. My guess is we're, we're a lot closer than we realize to the Lord's return. And Jesus said this, I will come again. And I will take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. Now why is that important this morning? I mean, good, good listeners, expository listeners, often ask the question, it's a two-word question, so what? So what does that have to do with us this morning? With all the other things in my world, with all the hecticness, even around the holidays, so what does that have to do with me? And that, and that is a great question if asked carefully and respectfully. Look at 1 Peter 4 7. This would be what we call the redemptive context. Peter says, The end of all things is near. Jesus is coming back just like he said he would. And in light of this truth, we can, number one, endure suffering just as Christ did. And number two, live in obedience to the will of God as we wait for Christ's return. That's really how our section in First Peter this morning divides. We can endure suffering just as Christ did. Look at First Peter 4, chapter 1. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Peter's going to use that phrase several times, in the flesh. In his body, he's going to suffer. And there was no other way that he could suffer unless he took on the flesh so that he could die in our place for our sin vicariously because we too are in the flesh. Peter moves right into this idea. A believer who has suffered for doing right has made a clear break with sin. A believer who suffers according to the will of God and continues to obey God in the midst of that suffering has made a clear break with sin. You know, it was Peter who witnessed Jesus' humility. Peter saw how Jesus was rejected by his own. His own received him not. Peter saw how Judas, one of his close companions, betrayed him, and yet Jesus chose obedience to the will of the Father over rejection. Peter himself denied the Lord at a crucial time, right as he is about to be tortured and nailed to a rough wooden beam. Jesus chose obedience to the will of the Father before the denial of a close friend. Peter witnessed the humility of Jesus as he allowed others to mistreat him, as he allowed most likely others to mistreat his family and call their character into suspicion because of the way in which he was born. Peter realized that this one, when he made that profession, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. He realized he had the power to defeat them. He had the power to call on angels. Yet he was meek. He was lowly, and he answered not a word to his accusers. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Let's keep reading in verse 1. Arm yourselves. It's a military term. We are in a military context. This is a battlefield, not a playground. Yesterday was a battlefield for the believer, not a playground. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This isn't the regular word for thinking. I want, you, I want to highlight this because it's very important. There, there are several words in the Greek language that refer to thinking. One particular word is used 62 times. The word here in 1 Peter 4 verse 1 is used only twice in the Scriptures. It's a rare word. Let me read the other passage. You'll recognize the passage. In 1 Peter 4, it's translated thinking. Let me read you the only other reference. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What word is, what word is the same word that Peter just used? We, we, we really have two choices, don't we? Thoughts. Or intentions, and we would think it's which word? Thoughts. And it's actually the other word. It, it means purpose or intention. Peter says, since Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose and intention that Jesus had. It doesn't just mean to have the same thoughts that Jesus had, though that would be included. It means to have the same purpose of living while being mistreated. To obey God 
because we understand this is not all there is. Be ready and willing to suffer as Christ did. Let's keep reading. Arm yourselves with the same intention or purpose as Christ who also suffered. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let me ask you a question. How does suffering cause us to stop sinning? Do all people who suffer stop sinning? No. Do all believers who suffer stop sinning? No. Believers can actually become extremely bitter and respond in greater rebellion while they're suffering. So what does this phrase mean? It means to make a clear break with sin. The person who suffers for doing what is right and remains faithful to God in spite of the opposition has made a clear break with sin. Suffering and responses and choices we make while suffering expose our character. Like Job. Like Moses. Hebrews 11 says this about Moses. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By the way, that was a place of incredible privilege. Of incredible affluence. Of incredible power. But he chose not to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Listen to what he chose. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Well, how could he do that? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, Moses realized that the treasures of Egypt were going to pass. And he would stand and give an account to his God for the life he lived, so he chose rather to be mistreated and identify with the people of God. Go up to the previous chapter. Look at 1 Peter 3, because Peter's going to touch on this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered. Believer, when you choose to continue to do God's will in the midst of intense suffering, rejection, and opposition, you prove to a watching world and a watching church that you are not dominated by your passions. That even as you go through and you are immersed in intense suffering and you still follow God, what you are saying is that sin is no longer my master, but Jesus Christ is. So as to live, verse 2, for the rest of the time in the flesh, that's the rest of one's life on earth, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And here's the response. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices, it's sufficient for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's using the term Gentiles here not uh, to refer to non-Jews, but to unbelievers. The time is sufficient. What does that mean? Stop sinning. Don't give any more energy to sinning. 
Stop pursuing sin in all its varied expressions because the time suffices. What does that mean? Here's what it means. And most of us are going to get this. You've already sinned enough experientially that you know the end of that path. You've already, you've already sinned in your thoughts and in your motives and in your words and in your actions enough to know that the end of that path is hollow and empty and painful. That it leads to nothing. It leads to guilt. It leads to further darkness. Listen, the time is sufficient for you to know what sin produces. So stop pursuing sin. Stop pursuing what unbelievers want to do. Peter then gives a few examples. Look at verse 3. Living in sensuality. These people are totally given over to their sensual passions and they live without any moral restraint. He uses the word passions, which simply refers to letting your sinful desires dictate your behavior, whether that be anger or immorality or a reaction that is sinfully wrong. Passions. Then he's going to refer to drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties These are simply banquets and feasts given to reckless living and wild immorality and lawless idolatry. Interesting phrase, because isn't all idolatry against God's law? Isn't a single act of idolatry a breaking of the Decalogue? So what does he mean here? It seems to imply that there is a type of idolatry that these sinful and sensual passions lead people to, that even secular governments have put a law against. And they are given to this lawless idolatry, forbidden, a type of idol worship forbidden even by secular governments. And folks, the time that has passed is sufficient for us doing what the Gentiles do. So stop sinning. Stop slandering. Stop being ruled by your passions. What is the motivation for that? Look at verse 4. With respect to this, they, the unbelievers, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Well, why? I mean, so, so it's not just that they're Surprised you don't join them. They are upset. They are irritated. They become hostile. And they malign you. And some of you have had this experience. Some of you will be at Christmas work parties this year. And when you don't run to the same flood of drinking that they run to, they're just going to give you that glance. Or they're going to ask you. Or if you've been dating for a year or 18 months and you haven't yet done what they do, they're they're going to be shocked. Because your non-participation implies something. Your non-participation implies condemnation, doesn't it? 
when you don't run with them to the same wild living, you're, even if you're there and you're kind and you're gracious, your non-participation implies condemnation, which is judgment upon their behavior. It serves as a snapshot of their future judgment. Why else would we, they respond that way? Why else would they slander you and malign you at this shock that you wouldn't do what they do because you have just quietly condemned their behavior and you have given a snapshot that they will be judged by God? That's why they become hostile and malign or slander you. This is exactly what Peter says. Look at verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is our motivating factor for living for Christ rather than giving in to this wild living. One day, both unbelievers and believers will give account to God. Now, let's make a clear distinction here. Believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is a judgment. At that judgment, we will give an account for our life and our ministry, but we will not give an account for sin. The reason is sin, all of it, was paid for in full at the cross. There will be great reward or minimal reward, depending on how. So there is a sense of suffering loss where you could have lived more for Christ and you will sense that loss at the judgment seat of Christ, but it is not about sin. Unbelievers, however, do not stand at the judgment seat of Christ. They stand at the great white throne judgment. And there is someone sitting on the throne from whose face the heavens and the earth flee. That is where unbelievers will stand. Twice in Revelation 20, when it's talking about the great white throne judgment, listen to, listen to what it says about what they are judged for. Just, just listen, two times. They will be judged according to what they had done. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And folks, I want to I remind us that the warning of judgment is healthy for Christians. You will only understand the grace and the love of God fully and biblically when there is a dark backdrop of a right understanding of sin and judgment. It is healthy for a church and it is helpful for unbelievers to realize they will give account to God. No exceptions. The threat of judgment is part of Peter's encouragement to live faithfully in the context of suffering. The warning of judgment actually motivates us to holy living. Look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached. Right? So Peter just tells them they're going to be judged. They're going to give an account. Listen, this is why the good news was preached. Why is it good news, folks? Because there's bad news. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The good news is this. Jesus came to pay the price fully for your sin. And in union with Him, you are accepted by the Father. Good news. For this is why the Gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. 
that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Look at verse six again. Just look down at the text. For this, a little word, this refers back to the subject of the previous sentence, which is the final judgment. He's actually going to repeat it that though in verse six, that though judged. In other words, it was because of the coming final judgment that the good news was preached even to those who believe. So what does it what does it mean when even to those who are dead? So as Peter's writing to these believers that are being persecuted in Asia Minor, he is saying the gospel came and was preached. Most likely what he is referring to is it was preached to people that were alive on the earth but have now died since that gospel was preached. And these people believed so that they didn't die to face the judgment that unbelievers face. But look at what he says, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, yes, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The gospel was preached to these people. They died. What is their future? They will live in heaven on the new heaven or on the new earth or both as God does eternally with eternal life. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Those who have believed and died will have eternal life in the spiritual realm. Can we just pause and say that's good news? The gospel has been preached in this location for over 30 years. And under the preaching of the gospel in just this location, people have come in and they have believed. And then they have physically died. And we have gone to their funerals. But we also know, see, we don't grieve as others who have no hope because we know that they will live in the Spirit the way God does. Consequences for our behavior is an important theme for our world. Look at verse 7. This really brings us into our next big section. The final judgment is near, so live according to God's will within the church. It's kind of an abrupt change. At first it seems a little subtle, but now he's going to say, listen, in light of this, in light of Christ's suffering in the flesh, in light of an impending judgment, the end is at hand. Live according to God's will within the church. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Right, as God's children, we're called to live differently now. This is what he said in the first chapter. Peter says this, as obedient children, right? As children, we image the Father. Sons image the Father. As children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy or distinct in all your conduct. He says in 1 Peter 4.2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. It's the same idea. It's this theme that he's tracing all throughout this letter. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, this is the so what? Therefore, be self-controlled 
and sober-minded. So the end is near. What does that have to do with how we live together now? What does that have to do with how we live with other Christians in this community? What does that have to do with how we live with other believers in the entire world? Verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Evaluate situations maturely, clearly, not as children who break off into little warring factions. Look at every single situation within the church sober-mindedly and with self-control. And when we evaluate situations maturely and correctly, we can pray more effectively. And the kind of prayers we pray for one another will be shaped because we are living with an awareness that the end of all things is at hand. I mean, really, if the end of history knocks on that door and Christ is about to enter those doors at the second advent, how will that change the way you're living? The end of all things is at hand. What that will do is it will create a self-controlled, serious-mindedness, and that will affect how we pray together. The second responsibility, because the end of all things is at hand, is an earnest love for one another. Look at verse 8. He says, above all, right? He's already said, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Then he moves into this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, we may not be suffering the same way that the audience of this letter suffered. But we do suffer. Some of you are suffering right now. And suffering has a way of wearing people down. Suffering has a way of wearing God's people down. It wears us down physically. It wears us down emotionally. And it wears us down spiritually. And people who suffer can become bitter. Bitterness is simply this, a continued negative response to a seeming negative situation or person. And people who suffer, and suffer long term and repeatedly, can become bitter people. And maybe that's where the audience of this letter found themselves. Under intense persecution, under intense rejection, under their characters being maligned because they don't run to the flood of evil with all the other people in the world. Like, are are you an idiot? You don't do these things? And that wears a person down. So Peter says this, keep loving Keep loving one another. Don't grow irritated. Don't grow embittered. Don't posture yourself on one side, the us and them. Keep loving one another earnestly, sincerely. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Folks, we will sin against each other. Even in this tiny little community called Highlands Baptist Church, we will sin 
against each other. We will offend each other. We will annoy each other. We won't always do what the other one expects us to do. So keep loving one another. Love earnestly. Love sincerely. Because when we love sincerely, we are much less likely to focus on one another's faults. When all of a sudden you are fixated on the faults of someone else, I'm going to exhort you right now, keep loving that person. And pray for them. It's hard to be critical against someone you're praying for and someone you're earnestly loving. Wayne Grudem wrote, Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. Keep loving one another. I am supposed to keep loving you earnestly. You are supposed to keep loving me earnestly. We are supposed to keep loving one another earnestly. And then that love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean they did not sin against you or offend you. No, they did. But an earnest, sincere love will not make a big deal about that. Because there can be no real community without sincere unity. The third and fourth responsibilities actually move into two of our five core values here at Highlands, community and ministry. These are the expressions of a sober-mindedness, a self-controlledness, and a genuine, earnest love. If that's happening in a community, look what else will be happening. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another. And then he makes it really difficult, right? Without what? So, So it's not enough just to open the door and prepare a good meal. You know how much that costs? And this is a bad night. It's a Thursday night football game. Honestly, this is so inconvenient. Grumbling, right? I mean, they didn't even say thank you for the roast. That thing, do you realize the price tag on that roast? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. grumbling. Sincere, intense love, which seeks the good of others, finds practical expression in hospitality. Okay, this is as simple as I can put it. Those who have experienced the grace of God are gracious to others. Those who have experienced the true grace of God will enter into community with people unlike them and show God's grace to them. Grumbling gives evidence that the motive is inward rather than outward to one another, to other Christians within the household of faith. That means us having each other in our homes, not just for a meal, but to care for and to pray and to know and to laugh and to cry and to hurt with and to understand. So when we come together and we worship on Sunday in this corporate gathering, we offer one voice to praise God. The fourth responsibility of believers is the use of of spiritual gifts to serve each other. We would call this ministry, but the term ministry has become so professionalized that maybe that word doesn't communicate what is intended here. 
What is meant is willing and humble service to one another. Humble ministry-mindedness. Does that describe you here? Using your gifts, what God has given you to serve the other people in these chairs. Being a good steward of God's varied grace to edify other believers, to encourage other believers. Sincere, intense love which seeks the good of others finds practical expression in the use of our spiritual gifts, not for self-advancement, but for God's glory and the good of others. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, and every believer has at least one gift, some have many, use it, employ it, put it into service for one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, and, and now he's going to launch into this, this simple division. There are five lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. No list has every single gift. No gift makes every single list. It's beautiful how that works. There's no gift greater than the other gift. There are verbal gifts. There are manual gifts. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, that means he speaks God's words for the very purpose that God wants them spoken. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That means there are no spectators here. There are no food critics. We go into a fine dining establishment. We evaluate the service. We evaluate the quality of the food. We write it up. There's none of that going on here. As one person has helpfully stated, we all gather together with the gifts He has given us to serve an audience of one. There is one God. Glory goes to Him alone. And we all use God's varied grace, how He's distributed to us freely for His glory. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. A church that prays, intensely loves one another, is a community that shares life together and serves one another, and is able to forgive one another more quickly when minor issues arise because we've already been taking the lower seat and washing each other's feet. And why does all that matter? Because verse 7, the door to the second advent is about to swing open and Christ will return. The end of all things is at hand. And then Peter closes with the doxology, to Him be glory and dominion. To Him be glory, honor, praise, majesty, and dominion, power, forever and ever. Amen. Now, this will sound very strange to you if you are not a believer. So quickly this morning. God loved the world that He gave. And He gave His Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. So the theme of judgment comes in. Why? Why was the Gospel preached? So that they could live as God lives. Eternal life. How do you receive that free gift of grace? 
You believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Savior. Believer, will you repent where your life does not align with God's will, His Word, even as you suffer? Will you reconcile where there is division and distance, either by letting love cover it, or by graciously and tenderly moving into that person's life for true reconciliation? And would we as a church recommit to pray by rightly understanding the end times in every situation? Would we recommit to earnestly love one another, show hospitality to each other, and use our gifts for God's glory? The true meaning of Christmas is not sentimental feelings, about a baby born in a manger, but about God becoming flesh so that He could rescue us from the terrifying, horrific reality of sin and judgment. And it's about suffering for doing good and living distinctly as we wait for the second advent. Let's pray.